Gospel of John in chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 14. Weeks before his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus talked to his disciples about what was to come. And in John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says these words. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. There is a finality when we talk about death. And whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection, there, there still is when we think and when we talk, we say the word death, there's, a, there's an end to that. Easter, if it's anything, is about death and life. It's about a tragedy and it's about a triumph. It's the end and not the end. See, when it happened, the crucifixion of Jesus looked just like another tragic exercise of power by a group of elites who needed to eliminate a voice that threatened the status quo. It happened thousands of times in history, maybe even millions. The cynics, the cynical of that day would see this happening and murmur, yeah, someone gets vocal, they start to make those in power nervous, then that person disappears, they get erased, Um, they get imprisoned or beaten into submission or sometimes killed. And to all human appearances, Jesus' death was a terrible injustice. It was a collaboration between Jewish power brokers and a weak-willed Roman military governor who wanted peace more than he wanted to do the right thing to get rid of a nuisance. In the view of some, some might just look at this and they say, well, this was just a story of a gentle country preacher who got himself killed because he didn't know enough to keep his mouth shut. And it was tragic. But the clear truth from the whole of Scripture is that the crucifixion was the plan of God to bring about the reconciliation of people who are far from God to satisfy his justice and to defeat the power of evil through loving sacrifice. Some who claim to be Christian today choose to diminish the place of the cross in their faith and they say it's too bloody or it's too ugly It's too violent to be part of the understanding of who God is and what he demands. And some go as far as to reject the idea that the Son of God died. I read this on the internet this week. They they reject the idea that the Son of God died to atone for sins, saying that such an idea makes the Heavenly Father guilty of child abuse. So if you're tempted to ignore the cross today, if you regard the sacrifice of our sins of the world as a mistaken understanding of the meaning of the cross, if you've allowed yourself 
to become repulsed by the cross. We hope that you could think differently today and think differently about the love that was shown there to help you to faithfully accept the violent death that happened on that hill outside of Jerusalem. That that's a critical part of your hope of eternal salvation. The first word I want us to associate with the cross this morning is the word voluntary. Just the word voluntary. Jesus' life was not taken from him on the cross. That's so important. His life was not taken from him on that cross. He gave his life for us. The Bible tells us that at his hearing, Pontius, at his hearing before Pontius Pilate, Jesus refused to argue his case. Now I think, was he just dumbstruck by the desperation of the circumstances? Or was he overcome by fear and so he couldn't say a word? That's what some try to say, but it clearly flies in the face of what we just read in John's Gospel. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. See, Jesus clearly understood that he was going to die. And he was aware of this gathering hostility of the Pharisees to his message. If he wanted to, he could, he could have quickly sort of made his way back to Galilee and disappeared in the small towns or even in the hills to save his life. But as he told his disciples... He knew that his purpose was to give his life as a ransom and to allow his blood to be poured out to establish a new covenant of salvation. The fact that he died voluntarily rather than as a victim only enhances this amazing love story of the cross. Some who heard Jesus declare that he was going to lay his life down said, he must be out of his mind, he must be insane. But the truth is that he was perfectly attuned to the greater purpose, and he submitted to the will of the Father. And he looked at the cost of the cross, at this terrible personal sacrifice that would be required of him, and he went to the cross willingly. Jesus died not as a victim, but voluntarily for people who are far from God, that they could have an eternal relationship with him. The first word is voluntary. The second word, when we think about the cross, is the word vicarious. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, vicarious is an intriguing word to use in the context of the death of Jesus. Although in today's world... I think it's easier to think of vicarious. We have cell phones right now. Many of you are, are have them in your pocket or your purse, and you can get a call and get an experience from someone outside of this room in real time. There's texting, of course, and there's Twitter and Skype, and, and you can be present with someone in real time as they're experiencing life, or I, I would imagine as they're experiencing death. Dictionary.com defines vicarious as performed, exercised, received, or suffered in the place of another. It goes on to say, taking the place of another person or thing, acting or serving as a substitute. That's vicarious. So why do we need someone to take our place? It's because we have no hope of ever saving ourselves. Go ahead. Give it a tr- go ahead. Give it a try. Save yourself. I mean, we take pills and vitamins. We drink clean water eat organic food, 
No amount of advice from Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz is going to help you to save your life at all. We, are, we have no hope. The Bible is direct and it's clear about the reality of sin. It doesn't sugarcoat the problem and it doesn't cover it over with some psychological jargon. The truth of the matter is this. Sin is universal. The Bible says that all have sinned, every single one of us. We all fall short of God's glory. And not only that, it says not only all have sinned, but it says that, that there's a consequence to this sin, and it's death. And so we can't save ourselves. We're all inflicted with this sin, and, and we can't save ourselves uh, except for the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is not just something we do. Make no mistake about that. Sin is something we naturally are. And this might be offensive to you. And, and it is to me. I'm, 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 I have offense to that. I, sin is who I am. That's, I can't do anything about that. And perhaps it is offensive, but it's nevertheless true. In Old Testament times in the first covenant, God mercifully offered a sacrificial system that, that allowed an animal to be sacrificed that would take away the penalty of sin and that if you confessed your sin, you would get forgiveness. And then because of that sacrifice, then people could approach God with true worship. That was necessary. But the cross became the fulfillment of that system. John the Baptist, he said, he looked at Jesus and he said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus stepped in voluntarily to take my place. And he took my sin, and he took your sin. The collective sin, not just of this whole room, but of this whole world, he took it all on himself that we could be reconciled to God because we're far away from him. We focus so often on this physical suffering of the cross. We make much of his beating and of this crown of thorns that was pressed into his scalp and of the nails driven through his hands and his feet. But the greater anguish, I believe, on the cross was the pure, sinless Son of God becoming sin for us. And as shocking as you may find it to admit that a loving God is able to judge and that sin is real and it separates sinners, that's all of us, from God for eternity. I hope that you won't let your feelings get in the way of what the Bible truly teaches. And then I urge you to thank Jesus Christ for his voluntary and his vicarious sacrifice, all motivated by amazing love. Verse 17 of John chapter 10 gives us a, a, a mystery to consider. Jesus says, I laid down my life only to take it up again. So the death of Jesus, voluntary, he offered himself up for the sins of us all. And vicarious, it was for us. It's my privilege to introduce a third V word, and that is the word victorious. Victorious. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we have victory. It is his resurrection that declares not the end. Oh, it looked like the end as the women made their way to the tomb that Easter morning. They did not go to the tomb 
to sing Easter hymns, Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah. The two Marys went to the tomb of Jesus with no fanciful illusions. They knew about Friday, the one we dare call good. They were there that dark Friday. Their hopes had been hammered. There was no doubt in their minds that Jesus was dead. The women made their way to take care of the body of their loved ones, their dead teacher, a final act of love and devotion, and it would be over. This is the end, they thought. And then they found the rolled-away stone, the empty tomb, and an angel who declared, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? You see, the risen Christ had declared, Not, not the end. And the disciples, for them too it looked like the end. Certainly the end of life with this teacher with whom they had traveled for the last two or three years perhaps, even the end of their lives if the authorities began to hunt down the followers of this one who had caused so much trouble in Jerusalem that Passover week. The disciples cowered in fear in the aftermath of his execution. The end of him is the end of us, was what they were thinking. And then Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. And in seeing him and hearing him and touching him, they too heard that little word, not, not the end. And Luke tells us when they saw the Lord, they were overjoyed. Well, I guess I would be too. Uh, There's hardly another story like that, a story that comes close to that one in all of human history. Here's one that comes a little bit close. In February of 1991, a woman named Ruth Dillow, living in a small town in Kansas, received word from the Pentagon that her son, uh, Private First Class Clayton Carpenter had stepped on a landmine mine in the Gulf and in that Persian Gulf War, and that Clayton was dead. And so she began to mourn as only a mother mourns. And then three days later, she got another phone call, and the voice on the other end said, Mom, I'm alive! Uh, Ruth said that at first she couldn't believe it, It was the voice of her 23-year-old son over whom she had mourned for some three days. She said, I jumped up and down. I was overjoyed. You just don't know how much. Easter people ought to be overjoyed. We know that life is serious, but it's not terminal. Do you understand the difference between serious and terminal? We encounter a lot in life that's deadly serious. Reversals and losses, problems and pains, accidents and catastrophes, serious, serious stuff. But it's not terminal. The last chapter will not be written by what happens to you, however awful and unwelcome that may be. The last chapter is written by him who triumphed over death the one who is the destroyer of this last great enemy of ours. When something would write the end, 
on your dreams, your hopes, your life, the risen Christ edits that phrase and inserts that little word, not, not the end. Now, this is just much more than positive thinking. Much more than positive thinking, as if we were participants in yet another production of Peter Pan. You know how it goes. Your urge to, to believe and, and clap your hands so that Tink will not die. You've seen Peter Pan, haven't you? Making him live by our feeble expressions of, of hope. I speak today aware of the pains and problems that many of us have experienced this past year and are experiencing even now. All the things that seem to write the end in our lives one way or another, all the things which cause us to question whether we can go on, failing health, financial ruin, betrayed and unreturned love, death, dashed hopes, deep disappointment, futility, loneliness, and more. Those are not the end because of the resurrection. It is only the resurrection that makes believable what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the Easter perspective. I've been told that in East Africa, Tanzania, when some Christians sing Alleluia on Easter morning, they actually sing Alleluia, ha, ha, ha. Now, I've never been there to check it out myself, and I really don't want to go for fear that it might not be true, but I'm told that they sing Alleluia, ha, ha, ha. Now, relax. Every time I mention some weird worship practice, you're afraid that I'm going to ask you to do it. Uh, you don't have to say it out loud, just, but just think it. I don't want to do anything this morning that would defrost you. Alleluia. Ha, ha, ha. That is the real message of Easter. We can sing with joyous laughter on the day of Christ's victory. Paul is laughing at death when he mockingly says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And he goes on to say, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Alleluia. Ha, ha, ha. This is not whistling in the dark. But it's confidence in life based on a personal relationship with one who was once dead but now is alive forevermore. Think of it. Some of you know that the Orthodox begin their Easter service with an antiphonal greeting. The priest stands before the people and says, Christ is risen. And the people respond, Christ is risen indeed. Absolutely, of course, without a doubt, certainly, for sure, positively, unquestionably. Surely, Christ is risen indeed. I fear, however, that there are some this morning who are inclined toward a more tentative response. The priest says, Christ is risen, and you might be prone to reply, he is risen, I I think, or I hope, or some say. You see, some people are more than a little afraid of the crude facts of an empty tomb. People, even religious people, tend to tiptoe around those facts, afraid that they can't stand up to examination, fearful of submitting them to scrutiny. And I think such tiptoeing around the facts was anticipated in the very way the gospel of Easter is told in the gospels. Notice that there's no shrinking back from the crude facts. They just spit it out. They just declare it. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He is not here. He is risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Come and see the place where he lay. Come, take a look. And later there's that exchange between Jesus and Thomas recorded in John 20. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What really matters, some well-meaning but dead wrong people say, is that Jesus lives on in our memories and in our hearts. We will never forget him. He'll always be our inspiration, our, our guiding star. And muscular, robust Easter faith, faith wimps out and, it is, and dissolves into some vacuous, ambiguous theology. But we need not be afraid of examining the facts. All the evidence points to this. Jesus is alive. Look and touch. Examine the evidence. And so all obstacles to joy, all the barriers to living exuberantly, living one of those alleluia, ha, ha, ha lives, all those barriers have been destroyed. A little girl who had to walk through a cemetery on her way home from school was asked if she was afraid. No, she replied, I simply cross it to get home. That's what the resurrection has done with death and all its cousins Desolation, defeat, despair, despondency, the family of D's. It has turned all of that into part of the pathway, the pathway on our journey home. It is not where we live. It is not our destination. It is not where we're headed. It is not the end. We are just passing through. Resurrection awaits. We are on our way home. And so we're hopeful people. In a world in which despair might seem to be the more rational response, 
Carl Henry, the founding editor of Christianity Today, said of Jesus, he planted the only durable rumor of hope amid the widespread despair of a hopeless world. Hope for this life. There is something bigger than anything that has happened or can happen to you, and that something is the victorious resurrection of Christ. Christ has conquered all. The music for Easter is a fanfare for the conqueror, the victor, the hero, Jesus, who died and now lives forevermore. The one who met death and overcame it, not just for himself, but for all who follow in his train, and not death alone, but all its lesser cousins that make us fearful. But we continue to have those conversations with Jesus. You know how they go. Yes, Lord, but... but it's my finances, or it's my job, or it's my family, or it's my health, or it's my love life, or it's my future. And to all of that, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The Eastern Orthodox Church uses icons, these elaborate and sometimes bejeweled pictures to celebrate faith. And one icon of the resurrection shows the risen Christ standing on the battered down doors of hell. And usually in these icons, the risen Christ has his hands stretched up like this, but in this icon, as he stands on those battered doors of, of hell that have been blasted off their hinges, and as he is surrounded by all the locks and chains and other signs of imprisonment and bondage, Christ's arms are not up like this, but they're extended down to Adam and Eve, who stand in that picture for all of us, for all of humanity. And Christ is reaching out to firmly grasp them by their wrists, and pulling them up out of their box-like tombs into the full force and freedom of resurrected life. Christ reaches down to grasp us. And I must ask, how are you resisting Christ's grasp? In what ways do you prefer the security of a limited and, and constricted existence? In what ways do you resist being forcibly pulled out of your place of confinement into the deathless and glorious freedom of the resurrected Christ? Jesus is reaching out to you. The risen Lord extends his hand, and if you grab it, he will make all your things new. And so let Easter dwell in your life. Let it live in your mind as you get the facts straight, in your heart as you see again on the cross Jesus dying voluntarily and vicariously for you and your sin, and in your will as you decide to live as God intends you to live with resurrection power in the company of the risen Lord. Will you meet Jesus today? Make no mistake about it. We are talking real resurrection here. 
Jesus is alive, not in the sense that his teaching outlives him, not in the sense that his character was of such magnificence that his spirit endures to this day, not in the sense that we can draw courage and and hope for our lives by reflecting on the quality of his, but he is alive in this sense. Once he was dead, but now he lives. Meet the risen Christ today.